0: once again. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to our primetime Bible study here at Calvary Baptist in Gaylord, Michigan. What I would like to do is use this time to revisit a subject that we actually talked about back in April, during when everything was shut down with the coronavirus. And I touched on a number of these topics. And so, well, it is true this is technically a rerun it was one of the earlier podcast versions, and I'm not sure that everybody heard it, and I think it's particularly relevant. So I'm going to go to that podcast that I actually put together back in April, and I think you'll enjoy the subject. What I want to talk about this evening is the end times. and What are we supposed to think about all the events that are going on right now? I'd like to begin by talking about the way that this particular topic, when it at least comes to our churches, sometimes these are easy topics and sometimes they're very challenging. Sometimes these discussions are gracefully open to different understandings and some of them are just prone to generate real controversy. What I found that when it comes to traditional conservative churches, the three topics that are the most volatile, not just among Baptists, but among people from many denominational backgrounds. The topics that are the most volatile are our opinions on music to be used for worship, our opinions on Bible translations, the pros and the cons of each approach of translation, and the underlying original language text behind them, and then the third one is this whole matter of eschatology, it's called, the study of the last days or of the end times. The Greek word eschatos means last things. And as such eschatology, this study of the last days, we often phrase it as the end times. It's a topic that has its own set of vocabulary. I find it even tends to have its own set of emotions. There are some people who approach it with great fear. Others become almost obsessed with finding out the answers to their questions. In some cases, people even try to predict dates of the prophesied events. It's certainly a subject that we're not going to solve this evening, but we can at least become more familiar with the concept and what God's Word tells us about these last days before Christ returns. Now the prophecies of Daniel and Ezekiel from the Old Testament are believed to be connected with the book of Revelation, and yet some extremely knowledgeable people who have studied the original languages most of their adult life, who are true born-again believers, fit that description of the conservative, Bible-believing Christian, even those people are not in complete agreement on how to understand this matter. I will tell you this, that in all of my life experiences, all my years as a teacher, I notice how people experience different levels of anxiety when they think about the future. I've certainly had my own share of it over the years, but it really doesn't have to be that way. If our trust and our faith is in the fully atoning work of Christ on the cross, our thoughts for the future can instead bring a sense of eagerness and comfort. We know that he's provided for us in eternity. We can know that he will provide for us in this life as well. Now with that thought in mind, I want to suggest a couple of things to you this evening as you consider this subject. First, God is sovereign. God is in control over everything. He knows the future. He controls what will happen. And I hope we can all agree that the God of the Bible is not distant and uncaring, but he also is not anything less than all-powerful. Nothing surprises him, And when it comes to all the evil that we see around us, he's still in charge. He permits things for his purposes, and we often have no idea of how much he has stopped in its tracks. God is who he says he is, and the existence of evil is not in conflict with the existence of God. There was a series of messages last fall in which I spent about three weeks covering all of those items. The second thing, though, we have to remember is that when the Bible outlines what will occur in the end times or the last days, what it is is it's what God has chosen to reveal to us. But he knows and controls the future. It stands to reason that when the Bible speaks about what will occur in the future, we can trust it, even though we don't fully understand it. For example, 2 Peter Chapter 1, verse 21 says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. These different understandings come across a certain range, but I really believe there's a solid reason that we should interpret Bible prophecy literally with a view of things that are yet to come. It's called a futurist view and with a viewpoint that we would call premillennial, premillennial. Now, it sounds like a three-point sermon to me with those three points, but let's unpack that at least a little bit. To hold to a literal interpretation is supported by the reality that over 300 prophecies are found in Scripture concerning the first coming of Christ, his, his birth in Bethlehem all of which were literally not just symbolically but were literally fulfilled the predictions surrounding the messiah's birth his life his betrayal his death and his resurrections were not filled just metaphorically or in a spiritual sense jesus was physically born in bethlehem he performed real miracles he was betrayed by a close friend he was physically nailed on the cross he died alongside two thieves. He was buried in the rich man's tomb. He was resurrected three days after his death. All of these details predicted hundreds of years before he was born. They were literally physically fulfilled. And yes, of course, there's a certain symbolism to them. We shouldn't ignore that. That's part of the majesty and the beauty of Holy Scripture. But it speaks to real people and real events. So this is the literal approach of understanding bible prophecy now next let's discuss the the term is futurist approach the bible states that the prophetic books among them for example daniel and revelation they not only contain accounts of historical events but predictions of future events now after the apostle john was given his messages for the churches of the day, he then received visions concerning what would occur in the end times. He wrote this in Revelation four one. John wrote, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, which said Come up hither, and I will show thee which things must be hereafter. Now, another argument in favor of the futurist view of the end times involves the promises that God made to Abraham concerning the land of Israel. Since God's covenant with Abraham was known as an unconditional covenant, and because his promises have not yet been fulfilled to all of Abraham's descendants, because they've never held all the land that was promised to them, this is why I would tell us, a Futurist view is the most accurate one. Now lastly, the third point of prophecy is that we interpret it through a a lens that we would call premillennial. What it really means is that in the final days, there is a sequence of events in which the body of all believers, taken up to be with the Lord, the world experiences a time of great tribulation. Jesus then returns to reign on the earth for a thousand literal years, a millennium. It's described in Revelation chapter 20. But the idea of Christ's return before the millennium, pre-millennial, there's even four different camps within that viewpoint. The pre-tribulational view, the mid-tribulational view, the post-tribulational view, and then what's called the The pre wrath. It's a variation of the mid trib view. Briefly, the pre tribulational view says, which is what traditionally Baptists have been taught, that Christ first snatches away all of his believers. In a a moment, they're gone, and they spend the next seven years in the Lord's presence awaiting his return. And the believers come back with him. During that time, the great tribulation, God pours out his wrath on all the earth. And then Christ returns, sets up his millennial kingdom on the earth. That would be the point at which the bodies of those who were dead in Christ come up out of their graves and receive resurrected bodies. Although even that's debated, whether that happens at that point too. And then Jesus sets up his millennial kingdom here on the earth and reigns for a thousand years for the purpose of dealing with Israel, separately from the way he has dealt with the the followers of Jesus. The mid-tribulational view says, um, since scripture suggests that the first three and a half years of the tribulation will be times of peace and good economic times... um, that this rapturing of the church isn't until after three and a half years. The pre-wrath view is a variation of that that says that just before things get really bad, he pulls away all of his believers. The post-tribulational view is one that says Christians who are alive at that point will go through the tribulation, but that God will protect them during the time of the tribulation, and then he returns at the end And it's very closely related to another view that says there's just one event, Christ's return. But that view doesn't believe there's a millennium. So you've got four versions of the pre-millennial view, and then you have one that's called the amillennial view that says there isn't a millennium. That's a symbolic time. Christ just returns. So now that your eyes are all crossed and you're totally confused, let me try to take a few minutes to ask you this question. Which one does the Bible teach? Well... That's going to really depend on what lens you view Scripture through because it's going to color how you read Scripture. Do you come from a dispensational lens that most people who have a Baptist or a Baptist-esque background have? They read it through a dispensational lens. And basically that's what I described with the idea of the rapturing of the church, then the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period, then the return of Christ to set up his... Kingdom for a thousand years on the earth, during which time God deals separately with Israel than he does with the rest of Christianity, with the rest of the church. That's that dispensational lens. Do you have that lens, or do you have a a covenantal lens? The covenantal lens that our, our friends who come from Reformed churches, Christian Reformed churches, Presbyterian churches, some of those backgrounds, would say that no, At the point of when Christ came to the earth, and when he died and rose again, that was the beginning of the New Covenant. The church replaced Israel, and God is no longer dealing with Israel. It it would say that today's state of Israel is not to be confused with the Israel of the Bible. That's not a view that we hold, but there are many people who are true Bible-believing Christians that do hold that view. Another variation is, do you come from a lens that would, we would call more Calvinistic, a heavier emphasis on God's sovereignty, or do you come from a lens that's more Armenian or perhaps Wesleyan would be the more modern term for it, and that's that saying that certainly God is sovereign, but man has the role to play. The Reformed lens, the Calvinistic lens, says man has very little role. The Armenian or Wesleyan lens says that man has a bigger role. Overall, Baptists have a tendency to hold to that dispensational lens, a rapture, a time period of the Great Tribulation, then a second coming, and then the setting up of a millennial kingdom. It's just that not everybody would agree with that point. And so that gives you a little overview on how complex this is. Now, let me mention one other time, one other moment. There is that other view that... um, Folks like Lutherans and Episcopalians, some Methodists, Roman Catholics hold what's called the amillennial view. It says that Christ's return and the rapturing of the church and all of those things are rolled together in one event. And that the thousand-year millennium isn't a literal period of time, it's a symbolic period of time that we've been in the millennium for a long time. That's the simplest view. Ours is probably the most complex view. We don't hold to the amillennial view because it just simply does not pay enough attention on Israel. But in any case, there are many who are fellow believers, whom I love, that hold that view, and I just respectfully disagree with them on it. As far as me personally, I view the end times through what I'm going to call it a mildly dispensational lens. I anticipate the rapturing of the church before the coming of the Great Tribulation. However, that viewpoint in church history is relatively new. It really didn't come up until the mid-1800s out of a group called the Plymouth Brethren. John Nelson Darby was the man's name. And it was largely ignored until 1948 when suddenly Israel became a nation. So that viewpoint that we hold is one that was not the teaching of Christianity for most of the last uh, 2,000 years. I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm hoping that it's right. What I'm saying is that Scripture is not abundantly clear. We have to hear, accept, and find peace with the truth that Christ will return exactly when it happens. Is yet to be seen. We can't let all the events of today color our understanding of Scripture, and that's something that I see happening. At some point in the future, at a day that nobody knows, God's going to end the present age, the day that we, age, we call the age of grace or the church age, and whenever he chooses to return, at that point we move into that millennial period. Now, one of the weaknesses to our viewpoint, our pre-tribulational viewpoint, is that we have a tendency to be looking for the Antichrist, for the you know, a world leader that will come up out of what is said to be the revived Roman Empire. Uh, some have thought it would be the European Union, That The Antichrist will rise and sign a a covenant agreement, a peace treaty with the nation of Israel. And for three and a half years, this Antichrist figure will reign in a one world government and promise peace. But it's a false peace. It will fool and entrap the people of the earth. This is where the mid-tribulational view comes from. It teaches that there will be untold loss of life and destruction that will occur during the second half of the great tribulation, but God will still be in control. He will gather the unbelieving armies of the world in order to judge them in an amazing miracle. Uh, The prophet Joel spoke of this in Joel 3.2. He wrote that he will also gather all nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Now, at this point, this refers to the Battle of Armageddon. After Christ will defeat all the armies gathered in that valley, Harmageddon, then he will reign with his saints for a thousand years and fully restore Israel to the land that was promised. At the end of that thousand year time period, a final judgment of nations and all remaining mankind will occur, and that's followed then by the eternal state with a new heaven and the new earth. Now, all of these events are referred to, and there is basis behind each of them. Exactly which one is true? Well, I think that's why we have to be careful. We don't know when Christ is going to return. Many people believe that it's going to be soon, The difference is this. The definition of the word soon is on God's timeline and not ours. You've heard me talk about how when I was growing up and I was, um, you know, 10 or 11 years old. And we hit the early 70s because I was born in 1959. We hit the early 70s and there are events going on. And I'm growing up watching the evening news and I'm seeing the 1967 Six Day War in the Middle East in the 1973 Yom Kippur War. And I remember my parents really being very um, kind of taken in by a book by author Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth. It took the events of the time, the mid 70s energy crisis, the Arab oil embargo, and there was such great speculation that the rapture was so imminent that people made unwise decisions about their own future. The fact that we were at the height of the Cold War only added to that speculation. And some Christians spent what I would call just an inordinate amount of time being almost obsessed with trying to predict the date of the rapturing of the church. The biggest problem that I have with that kind of obsessive focus on when Christ is going to return is people dogmatically insist Things that they just don't have the basis to insist. Listen to what Jesus said about the timing of his return. This is from Mark chapter 13. Jesus said the following. He says, but of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. Jesus is saying that even he did not know the day but only the Father knows. Friends, for us to claim that we know when Christ is going to return means that you're implying that you think you know something that Jesus does not know. And to put it very bluntly, that is either profoundly naive at best, or at worst, one of the most serious cases of puffed up pridefulness that is on a scale that it makes the word infinity pale in comparison. <laughs> So I am very troubled by people who seem to know the end times with such great certainty. And in most cases, it's because they take what's going on in their life and what they see going on in the world, and they read scripture colored completely by that. Some of the other things that I see from those individuals, and I'm not talking about anyone individual, and I'm not talking about anybody in the church, in our church, okay? Please don't read anything into that. But what I see in that mindset is that they seem to think that they have been given an insight that nobody else has, that no pastor has, which it's certainly possible they've been given an insight that a pastor doesn't have. I'm not going to deny that. But they also seem to think that they're smarter and wiser and more intelligent and more insightful than anybody, from the President of the United States to, um, you know, you name it. They have a case of puffed-up arrogance that is just beyond imagination. And they write off anybody who won't listen to them. That's my problem with it. They have placed their own viewpoint above Scripture. So how should we look at this issue of the end times? And more specifically, are we upon the end times right now? The best answer I can give you is, I don't know. Christ could certainly return at any time. We should be obedient. But the fact that he could return at any time does not mean that he must return at any time. Scripture also says we need to occupy until he comes again. So our first response to this question in our mind should be obedience. Be ready, but also be active. Go about your lives. Share the gospel. Carry out the Great Commission. Be looking for him, but don't be doing nothing sitting there looking for him. Secondly, we should be worshiping. God's provided our way of escape. He's provided for us in eternity. He's given us salvation. We need to be worshiping him. But thirdly, we need to be proclaiming his word, that we need to be ready to be reaching out and connecting to the community. We need to be focusing our prayers and our thoughts outwardly. So I'd like to close with a reminder that hundreds of Old Testament prophecies have already been fulfilled, and it's reasonable to believe what it says about the end times will be fulfilled as well. For those of us who have trusted Christ as our Savior, and know him as our Savior, we don't need to be afraid. The people that need to be afraid are those who have rejected him. They should have great fear. And so here's my best suggestion about how to view this question of With all the things going on in the world right now, people say, is this the end times? Here's my best answer for you. Christ's return could happen at any time, but it could also not be for a number of years. It could be well beyond our lifespan. Second, whether his return is pre-tribulational, mid-tribulational, post-tribulational, good folks are going to differ over that. There is some scriptural basis for all three views. My opinion, I don't know. I am certainly hoping for a pre-tribulational return. But it may be many years ahead. None of us may be around to face it at the time. We'll already be in the presence of the Lord waiting for the second coming when we receive our glorified body. So let's not get too concerned or obsessed with this matter. Because the more that we focus on something like that that we completely cannot control... What that means is we're not focusing on something else. And that's doing what the Bible says. We're not focusing on carrying out the Great Commission. We're not focusing on encouraging one another. We're not focusing on reaching out. We're not focusing on sharing the love of Christ. Sometimes we get so wound up about our own speculations, and it really is about us, the people that get so adamant about the issue if you listen to the talk that they give, the number of personal pronouns they use, the number of I's and me's, is mind-boggling. It isn't about Christ. It's about them. And they're just not willing to face it. Friends, don't get too concerned or obsessed with this matter. We don't know exactly when Christ will return. We do know this. We do know that he will return. So the question is not when. The question is whether you are ready when that happens. And the only way to be ready is to believe that Jesus is exactly who he says he is the very Son of God, indeed God himself, wrapped in the human flesh, who could pay the price that only he could pay because he's the only one that God sent to do it. Keep our focus on Christ. Don't keep our focus on our fears and our preferences. And well, the debate in the political forum has its place. And we should be involved with it. We should not be obsessed with it. And there are also some people who I think almost lose their way because they get so wound up over the political debate. Don't make that mistake. God is in charge, and he will see us through this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it through the passage of time. Help us, Lord, to focus on you, And help us to focus on following what you taught us. Help us to not be so concerned and so hand-wringing in all of our thoughts that we're dysfunctional. Help us to be concerned about encouraging one another, not dragging each other down. And help us, Lord, to be reaching out to encourage other believers and to try to reach and to connect with those who don't yet believe. Help us to give thanks for all things, Lord. Help us to not have a spirit of fear, and yet help us to also have a spirit of faith. And help us to know that you will come when you will come. And until that time, may we worship you and follow you in each of our days. We ask this, Lord, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.